There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. October the 31st was supposed to be the day that the United Kingdom headed for the exit door of the European Union. Let's get Brexit done. Get ready for Brexit on the 31st of October. We are coming out of the EU on October the 31st, come what may. Conference. Yet Brexit Day now feels like Groundhog Day. EU leaders have accepted Britain's request for a flextension to Article 50, the mechanism by which Brexit would happen, to January the 31st, 2020. And in the midst of a mighty tussle over the detail of the deal agreed by the Prime Minister Boris Johnson with the EU over the terms of departure, Parliament voted earlier this week to hold a snap general election in December, a Brexmas. It's a sign of how disruptive the leaving process has been for British politics and business, which faces the uncertainty of major change to the terms on which commerce will be conducted with European neighbours and border arrangements between Northern Ireland and the Republic, which look anything other than conclusive. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, can UK PLC thrive after Brexit? My guest is José Manuel Barroso. He served as Prime Minister of his native Portugal before becoming President of the European Commission in 2004. During his 10 years in office, he oversaw the passing of the Lisbon Treaty, the current constitutional basis of the EU. The expansion of the Union from 15 to 28 members, that's including the one still trying to get out. And in 2012, he received the Nobel Peace Prize on behalf of the EU. He's now non-executive chairman of Goldman Sachs International. Jose Manuel Barroso, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you. So I'm just going to ask you a very simple question in this complicated situation. Is Brexit happening? And if so, when do you think it's happening? (laughs) I mean, nobody knows really because it has been so unpredictable. Having said that, if you ask my opinion, I believe Brexit will happen and I believe there will be a deal for Brexit. But that will be only the beginning of a very difficult negotiation for the future relationship, namely what kind of trade relationship, not only trade, but also uh, in other matters, will be the one between the European Union and the United Kingdom. So when you say that you think Brexit will happen, do you think it will happen before the 31st of January? Is this flex extension more about the flex than the extension? <laughs> it depends on the British politics. And uh, as I usually say, that's clearly above my pay grade. <laughs> Nobody knows what can happen because of, until now, a lack of majority in the parliament. So it depends on internal political developments in Britain. As I've been saying for some time now, the real problem was not, and it's still not, between the UK and the European Union, but between the UK and the UK. So there has not been a real agreement here. There was an agreement to say no, 
no to the European Union in a binary choice to the European Union. There was a referendum and the answer was no, but it's easier to say no than to say yes to a specific solution. And until now, we have not seen support for a specific solution. And that's why in Britain, with a great tradition, probably being the strongest parliamentary democracy in the world, when there is not a majority in the parliament, it, everything becomes more difficult. And do you like Boris Johnson's deal? Would you have uh, been happy to sign up to that when you were president of the European Commission? Uh, first of all, I would not like the European Union uh, without Britain. So I, I think it's not good, neither for the European Union nor for Britain. Having said that, of course, I think it was good that the European Union countries and Britain found an agreement. They found it, by the way, with Theresa May. There was an agreement, but there was not an agreement between the, the British government and the British Parliament. Now, let's see if it's possible to have an agreement with the new government of Britain. In fact, the Europeans have once again shown their flexibility, in fact. I think this deal creates some issues, this issue about the border. Northern Ireland, Ireland and its relationship to the UK and how, how the trade border would work. And also Scotland, frankly, because uh, the Scottish are saying, but why can Northern Ireland get some kind of specific treatment and we have voted also against uh, Brexit. Uh, we don't have a specific uh, solution. So I, I think these issues are serious. From a European perspective, the important point was to keep the integrity of the, the single market. This, I think, is, is done. And I think people are sad because Britain is leaving. But they understand Britain is a very important country and it's a neighbor. It will be there forever as a, as a neighbor. They want to have a constructive relationship with Britain. So I, I prefer this agreement than no agreement. When you were president of the European Commission, you oversaw the passing of the Treaty of Lisbon and that established a route for member states to leave the Union. <laughs> it seems quite ironic looking back. I mean, did you see this coming? Uh, not at that point in time. But when uh, David Cameron told me, in fact, he was very nice. He called me before making the public announcement that he was going... Of a referendum in A referendum. I, I saw immediately the risk. And in fact, I, I, I'm on record saying that I thought it was a big mistake and that we could have a very negative result in a referendum like that. Because when you spend decades criticizing the European Union, it's not a surprise that people have a negative reply to your answer, do you want to remain in the European Union? So I saw that coming, but not at the moment of the signing of the Lisbon Treaty, where, by the way, the then Prime Minister came late. He did not sign. I don't know if you remember that. He did not sign in front of all the others because he did not want to appear in the uh, photograph. That was a, a symbol of Britain's awkward relations with the EU. But I have to ask you whether it doesn't take two sides to make this messy situation. And yes, there is now at least a deal on the table. But it's been a very bitter time. And a lot of harsh words have been exchanged. And is there a view, really, that, that says this is a bit unnecessary? If the EU had been more flexible, if there was a more outer core position for countries who, whether you like it or not, have a slightly different relationship to the inner core than France, Germany, Portugal, Spain. Britain had already a lot of opt-outs, in fact. It's not a member of the euro, and the euro, according to the treaty, is the currency of the European Union. That's important to understand. It's not just the currency of the euro area. 
The euro is the currency of the European Union, but of course, uh, there was an opt-out for Britain, indeed also for, for Denmark. Britain is not part of Schengen. Britain had the so-called British rebate in terms of budget. Uh, Britain was not part of some chapters that were linked to justice and home affairs. The point about freedom of movement, I said th- that to David Cameron when he mentioned that he wanted some kind of this was exceptions. A big- Cousins Belli, yeah. wasn't it? Big debate. David Cameron wanted more concessions on freedom of movement. It does seem that the electorate yeah. kind of agreed with I, him. I told him at the oh, time, 52%. ask anything except that. Yeah, he said, why? Because you are not going to get it. Because it's a fundamental principle of the European Union. Uh, and, you know, having said that, if you ask me, could we have avoided this collectively if there was better negotiation between Britain and the European Union. Yes, I think it would have been possible, but okay. But now it's a a very hypothetical question. Yes, and we want to look forward with you. So a couple of thoughts about that. Do you see, for a start, any danger that we could still be in a no-deal territory, i.e. that you get through this next year, the trade deal can't be agreed and that Britain crashes out or there's a resurgent hard Brexit movement. I know that you have to assess these risks in your day job these these days at Goldman's. I mean, how high do you assess that risk? I think the risk today of a no deal is very low, but it exists. And so we always have to hope for the better, but prepare for the worse. So that's the contingency planning. Of course, I hope that all uh, institutions are making it. But I think today it's very low, the risk of a a no-deal Brexit. I believe the government really wants to avoid that as well. And do you think that Boris Johnson, broadly speaking, do you approve of the strategy that he took, which was to play poker with a no-deal Brexit, take everyone pretty much towards the brink of that? Do you think that helped achieve the deal that he got? Not only his strategy, but also the fact that uh, in the parliament, there was a sufficient commitment to avoid a no-deal because, frankly, that was a great incentive for him to get a deal. Uh, the so-called ban amendment, it was a very important incentive because uh, in that case, he, he wanted to come to the parliament and to show I have a deal before the 31st of October. And in fact, he got the deal before the 31st of October. The problem is that uh, afterwards, there were still some difficulties approving it in the parliament. So I'm not going to give now credit to A or B. I think it's the democracy working in a parliamentary democracy. Uh, it's difficult when you don't have a majority. I was prime minister and I was leader of the position in my country. So, but well, I indeed. had a majority. And so therefore, <laughs> let, let me ask you, prime minister to prime minister, with a few other people listening in, What's your opinion of Boris Johnson? Uh, too soon to say. Uh, but uh, one thing I know, Boris Johnson, some people uh, just call him a populist, a little bit like uh, people say about Trump, and it's completely different. Boris Johnson is a cultivated person, and he has read many books. I think before all this, he was a globalist. Afterwards, he decided to to vote for Brexit. But for instance, I, I've read recently a book he wrote, published in 2007. Let me just make a quote. Come and with the, your notes. Uh, you yes, come armed I, 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 I usually take notes of things I, I see that are interesting. Uh, it's the book called The Dream of Rome. And Boris Johnson said about Turkey, should they be buried by their alien culture from living here? We would be crazy to reject Turkey, which is not only the former heartland of the Roman Empire, but also, I see, one of the leading suppliers of British fridges. (laughs) 
Uh, one Turkish company alone has 15% of the UK's uh, fridge market. So, I mean, Boris Johnson was recently in favor of Turkish, not only membership, but freedom of movement of the Turkish in Europe. And as a mayor of London, he was a, a globalist, not he was never a nativist. So I think he has this instinct still. Let's see what he does afterwards, uh, if he remains prime minister, which I believe it's going to happen. You think he'll remain prime minister? I, I think we are going to have Boris Johnson for many years. Confident prediction there. Like that, our listeners can tell us whether they share that view. Let's talk a bit about the mechanics of building a bilateral trade deal, because whether or not we leave the EU by the end of this year, the beginning of next year, then we get into this nitty-gritty trade deal and the big questions arise. Workers' rights, tariffs. What are for you the main considerations and choices that the UK will have to make and indeed the EU will have to make to get this deal to come to life? The European Union still is today the biggest trade bloc in the world. And when you look at the world in economic terms, in fact, there are three major forces, the United States, China, and the European Union. Now, Britain is leaving. Uh, I think that's going to happen. So Britain will have to choose, are we going to be a junior, junior partner of the United States, or are we going to be a senior, the super ally of Europe? I think that's the second choice. Uh, because if you look at the developments, not only because of Trump presence, in fact, Britain is much closer to Europe than sometimes the British people think. I was there in the European Council with Margaret Thatcher, with John Major, afterwards in President of the Commission with Tony Blair, with uh, Gordon Brown, with David Cameron. And conservatives or Labour, they were always on the side of pushing for higher standards, not less standards, in consumer rights, in environment. The climate change agenda was basically British and Scandinavian agenda. So the idea now that because we leave the European Union, we are going to lower standards. Frankly, I don't think the British public uh, will support that. I don't think the British regulators will support it. And if you look at the main issues today that we are discussing globally, trade, climate change, geopolitical issues like Iran, Britain is much closer to Europe than to the United States. You have the chance in your job, your non-executive chairman at Goldman Sachs International. So that's the London-based wing of global investment bank. You, you get to see really how people are responding across the, the world to the prospect of Brexit. What worries the people that you deal with most? If you're so sort of reasonably happy this deal can get going and you think alignment just about work, alignment with the way that the EU currently does things... Where are the risks? You must be finding risks. I suppose you don't just turn up and tell everyone it's all going to be all right. I just want to clarify that I'm speaking on behalf of myself. I'm not here representing yes, any true. specific organization. Um, having said that, from a financial perspective, what's happening is not good. Because, for instance, for the, the City of London, the City of London is one of the two most important, if not the most important financial place in the world, certainly the most important financial place in Europe. And, uh, of course, there is already some delocalization is happening. So international banks are putting in continental Europe more resources, capital and people. That is happening. And now how much it's going to happen, it depends on the future relationship in terms of services. Uh, and also from a regulatory point of view, of course, that increases risk. It's more difficult to manage risk when you have, let's say, nine or ten entities than when we have one entity. So this is why uh, I would say the, the financial industry in general was very much against Brexit. 
So this is an additional risk. But of course, we believe that uh, we are equipped to, to deal with it. And in your own office is, is flexible. It can change its its walls around and re-engineer its space if it sort of decides it needs, like Alice in Wonderland, you know, the room needs to get bigger or, or smaller, depending on how the various Brexit potions might go down and if you need to up or down your head count. But do you expect that you will have a major relocation from London to continental Europe? Some relocation is already happening. And now what's going to happen depends on the concrete terms of the future agreements. And that's not yet done. I mean, this, this is access to the single uh, market. Access, I mean, some issues, are very practical issues. For instance, some of them, the European Commission accepted, for instance, only until March 2020, uh, the issue of uh, clearing houses here. Now, what's going to happen after March 2020? It depends on negotiation that is going to happen further. So it's not yet decided. What we are now discussing is just withdrawal. The divorce bill afterwards starts the real negotiation. The real negotiation starts afterwards. And some people are saying that in that time, the UK should pivot more to being the so-called Singapore on Thames, much lighter regulation. Don't worry so much about staying close to existing EU regulation, because that way you lose your potential advantage in signing other trade deals. How do you feel about Singapore on on Thames? I don't understand very well what does it mean, Singapore on Thames, because the British regulation today is certainly not lighter than the European Union. Uh, On the contrary, I will say that also because it's a much more developed financial sector here than in continental Europe, I think the regulators here are much more intrusive than the continental ones. That's so, a, do you that's think the myth. whole Singapore on Thames argument, which is often about watering down workers' rights regulations, doesn't make sense? No, or, what or happens, do you understand what people I, mean by I, I, it? I understand, but I think they are wrong when they say that the standards in Britain are lower or could be lower than in continental Europe. That's not the case today. What Britain has an advantage is, first of all, common law and the justice system. That's a great advantage because uh, people trust the British legal system and it's quick. The decisions are taken quicker than in most continental jurisdictions. That's one of the great advantages for business location in, in the UK, not only financial services. And the other great advantage is that it's easier to hire and to dismiss. So that, that's a reality in some of the countries, for instance. Uh, that might be one reason why some people cleave to... You know, feel attracted to a European or EU-driven view of workers' rights, that they think it gives them more reliability. Yeah, but in terms of the, uh, for instance, health standards, consumer uh, standards, environmental standards, or regulatory standards in terms of the regulation of the financial system, I don't think Britain will be on the side of lowering the standards, frankly. Let's talk a bit about the future of Europe itself. The new commission president is uh, it's from Germany, Ursula von der Leyen, but she was elected with the smallest majority in the history of the office. Uh, there is uh, still a lot of criticism swirling around her appointment. The European Parliament doesn't seem very happy about it. She delayed taking up her job. <laughs> is the commission on the back foot these days? And what's to blame or who's to blame for that? I know Ursula von der Leyen. I think she's a very competent person. But it's difficult. It's complex, the European Union. We are 28 or very soon uh, 27 countries. And so to if one demo- – look at the UK. It's only one country. It's so difficult to take a decision by the parliament, isn't it? And it's one. Can you imagine putting together 27 or 28? 
So, well, the structures you, might not be right for putting together to that. It would be the criticism, both of your uh, commission and those that came after you. No, the structures I, I, may not be equal to the task. No, but, you know, I think today life is difficult for any democracy. Look at the United States, the, the recent decision of the Congress against the president. And it's a federal state, United States of America. So uh, today, um, I, I really believe that life is difficult because of many reasons. Political life is difficult. And that complexity, it's part of what some I would call the new normal. But I, I will not over-dramatize that. I will not over-dramatize And has the balance of, of power in the EU shifted between France and Germany since you left the Commission? There has always been a, an element of this seesaw and to and, and fro. What do you, do you make of the relationship now and, and the era of late Merkel and... Possibly, who knows, early to mid-Macron, depending on how long the it lasts. Re- the real transformation is Britain living, and that's very important. Because uh, something probably that most people in Britain are not aware of, Britain was as much a leader in the European Union as France or Germany. Probably not on the euro area matters, but I can tell you, give you my experience. Every time we were discussing at European Council, it's the summit level, every time we were discussing the real strategic issues, relations with the United States, with Russia, with China, climate change, trade, the voice of the British prime minister was at least as important as the voice of the French president or the German chancellor. Now, Britain leaving, of course, it creates a new balance. France will be the only permanent member of Security Council, the only nuclear military power in the European Union. So what happens is that Germany is the biggest economy by far, but in fact, politically speaking, France is not less important. In fact, in many areas, is more important because uh, there are many issues in which defense matters, foreign policy matters, where France has a very important say, and Germany, also for historic reasons, will not take the initiative. So there will be a new composition of relations, of rapport de force, to use the French expression. So the relation between the powers, the most important powers in Europe. And by the way, the huge majority of members of the European Union are smaller, medium-sized countries. And they also have a say, look at Ireland. It's a relatively small country. And you can see how important a relatively small country can be. Last word from you on what you get up to when you're not busy in your day job or thinking uh, big thoughts about the future of of Europe and Brexit. I know that you love opera very much. In fact, I sometimes bump into you at the Royal Opera House, not far from us. Someone told me that you actually chose to live near the Royal Opera House because I think you're also a donor because you go so often. Is that the case? Yes, I love opera. I love music and art in general. But that's one of the reasons I live so close to the opera, so I can finish my my, my dinner and go. Uh, when the, the the voice says, please, ladies and gentlemen, take your seats, uh, I can finish my dinner. I still arrive before the opera starts. <laughs> I'm very impressed that you, you put the dinner in there as part of the package. So, well, let's have a, a last thought then. So what opera would best be a guide to Brexit or a warning, depending oh. on your view. And and I wonder which act you think we're in now. Oh, my God, that's uh, maybe an opera buffa. <laughs> I don't know. Sort of or, like or, over a more, the top or a more dramatic one, I don't know. Um, until now, Brexit seems more to me, uh, how can I say, free jazz than opera. <laughs> But by the way, I love free jazz. I love Ornette Coleman as well. So, but it's more free jazz than concerto. José Manuel Barroso, free jazz lover. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. And we'd love to know what you think. 
Which opera best sums up Brexit? Is it Tosca with people hurling themselves off battlements? Or, as my guest suggested, a wild improvisation? Do write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And for more of our journalism, you can subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer. We'll still be here before or after Brexit. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.